Our texts this morning are two. The first is a section from Luke chapter 2, verses 25 through 35. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is spoken against and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that from many hearts, the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And then our second text from Hebrews chapter 13. Verses 11 through 14. Actually, I'm going to back up to verse 10. For we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear that reproach which he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Father, we pray this morning that you would make your book live for us and that you would show us yourself in your word and that you would show us ourselves in your word. You who come and meet us in this place at this time in this way, will correct us, will rebuke us if need be, will challenge us and exhort us and train us in righteousness if we will but open our hearts to you. And so we say now, Master, speak. Thy servant heareth, waiting on thy gracious word. Amen. Well, in Luke 2, we're told the story very succinctly of the early years of the life of Jesus Christ. And in Luke chapter 2, we get about all the information that's available in the scriptures about the early life of Jesus. And it opens with Mary and Joseph traveling to Bethlehem to register for the census. We all know that story. And Mary giving birth in a barn and laying the infant Jesus in a manger because there was no place for them because of all the people who were coming back to register. Then we have the wonderful story of the shepherds to whom the angels appear, bringing good news of great joy. And then we have this passage. The infant Jesus, we're told, is circumcised on the eighth day. And then in obedience to the law, Mary and Joseph go up to the temple 33 days 
after his circumcision, and their purpose in doing so is twofold. First of all, every firstborn male that opens the womb uh, is considered the Lord's, according to the book of Leviticus, and uh, that's Leviticus chapter 12, and, and therefore that child or that even the animal from the flocks is called holy to the Lord. And that animal must be, or that firstborn child must be redeemed back by a sacrifice. And so Mary went to do that, to offer the sacrifice which redeemed back her firstborn, which was dedicated to the Lord. Mary was also required to offer what was called a sacrifice of purification because of the bloody nature of childbirth. Uh, any issue of blood rendered the bleeding person ceremonially unclean for as long as they were bleeding. And so after she healed up from the birth, she was required by the law of Moses to offer a sacrifice of ritual cleansing. And I believe we find that in Exodus 13. So this is an occasion of great joy for both parents, an occasion of thanksgiving and, and honor to God for seeing a mother safely through the dangers of childbirth and giving thanks for this young son. And the sacrifice on both of these occasions was the same if you were a poor person. A pair of turtle doves or a pair of pigeons were the animal which was to be sacrificed if you were poor. If you could afford it, you brought a lamb. But if you couldn't, uh, the Lord said you can use turtle doves. And so the priest would take the birds and he would slaughter them. And then he would take the blood of the birds and he would sprinkle it on the altar. In this ritual, all the guilt and all the uncleanness was considered to be transferred from the person making the sacrifice to the animal being sacrificed. And then the blood was sprinkled on the altar. Now, the body of the animal, after the blood was used, was then considered unclean. And so it was removed from the holy temple and it was taken uh, outside of the camp in the days of the Exodus wandering when the, the people of God worshiped in a tent or uh, when it was taken outside of the city walls uh, in the days of Jesus. And there was a valley there that was the designated place to take these things. It was called the Valley of Hinnom. You can actually look on Google Earth and you can see there are a couple of roads that are named Hinnom, that are just south of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, even to this day. And that is where the carcasses of those animals were burned. And that's, they were burned so that the ceremonial and ritual sin pollution couldn't be transferred to somebody else who touched them accidentally or in ignorance. The Valley of Hinnom was, was an interesting place. In 2 Kings chapter 21 and verse 6, we read about an evil Jewish king named Manasseh who was a very enthusiastic idolater and who even sacrificed his sons to the pagan god Molech as a live burnt offering, and he did it in the valley of Hinnom. And that kind of behavior was one of the reasons why the Lord led the Babylonians to destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple, and take most of the Jewish people back to Babylon with him. And when the remnant of the Jews returned 70 years later from the Babylonian captivity and rebuilt the city walls and rebuilt the temple, the Valley of Hinnom 
was turned into a designated dumping site. All of the human and animal dung from the city was taken to that place and dumped there after being removed. Anything that died of its own accord was taken and dumped there and left to rot. Household garbage was dumped there. And then you also had the constant burning of the carcasses of these sacrificed animals, and they were burned there. And the idea was to permanently defile the Valley of Hinnom. And so as you can imagine, it was a constantly smoldering garbage dump. It smelled of sewage, it smelled of rotting flesh, it was crawling with maggots and with flies. The stench was horrible, it was repulsive, it was sickening. In Hebrew, the way you say the Valley of Hinnom is Gehenna or Gehenam, which was how Jesus referred to hell. And the word for fly in Hebrew is zebul, or zebub. And Satan was referred to by Jesus as Baal zebub, the Lord of the flies. And in drawing the attention of his hearers to that place, Jesus is describing hell. He's saying this is a cosmic garbage dump. It's thick with smoke and decay. It's, it's filled with fires that never go out but smolder forever. And the maggots or the worms that are consuming the rotting flesh and the garbage, they never die and they never run out of rotting things to consume or dung to consume or decaying garbage to consume. And it's all presided over by the Lord of the flies and his busy, twitchy servants hopping from one foul thing to the next. You know, it, it, as I thought about this, I hadn't made the connection before, but uh, back in Sturgis, I knew a man who died. He actually died three times. He was in a motorcycle wreck in Wyoming and died three times in the ambulance before they could get into the hospital in Cheyenne, and they were able to bring him back each time. And uh, he was not a nice guy. And he told me the story of what happened because he remembered it. He said, I was at the gate of heaven and I was talking to whoever it is that keeps the gate. And he told me that I could not come in, that my place was down there. And he pointed and he said, and I saw hell. And I said, what was it like? He said, I can't describe it. But the one thing I remember was the smell. It smelled awful. Ron was his name. And I'm going to tell you a little bit more about Ron next week. Well, as Mary is in the midst of her sacrificial preparations, an old, old man named Simeon arrives on the scene. He's brought there by the Holy Spirit. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die until he had seen the Messiah. And Simeon, on that day, prompted by the Spirit of God, comes from wherever he's at in the city, drops everything, he goes to the temple, and immediately he comes to the baby Jesus and his parents. And Simeon takes this child up in his arms, and he's full of the Holy Spirit, and he blesses God for this child. And he says, Lord, I can die in peace now. 
I can die in peace. He says, I've seen your salvation. He will be a light for the Gentiles, and he will bring glory to your people, Israel. And then Simeon blessed Mary and Joseph, and then he said something very troubling to Mary. He said to her, this child, and it's really only apparent in the Greek what he's meaning here, this child will ruin many in Israel and he will resurrect many in Israel. He will be contradicted. He will be opposed, even though he's obviously a signal or a sign from God. He will reveal the thoughts of many hearts. And as his mom, you are going to have to witness all of this. And so a sword will pierce you to the depths of your own soul. Here in the midst of this occasion of great joy, uh, even greater joy than a normal birth, is some music that comes in in a minor key. Joy to the world. The Messiah is born. Angels rejoice and sing at his birth. And people will hate him. And they will reject him. And they will murder him. Because he reveals exactly what's going on in their hearts. Let me say something that may shock you this morning. The hatred of the willfully and persistently lost is a good thing, not a bad thing. The hatred of lost people who want to stay lost, who hate Jesus, is a good thing, not a bad thing. It's a good thing because it reveals the thoughts of their own hearts. And when men and women who hate God have their hearts revealed and their pretenses are ripped away, that causes them to hate Jesus even more and to hate him reflexively and to speak against him and to oppose him and to do things to him that break his mother's heart as she watches him being abused. It is a good thing but it is also a hard thing. It's hard to be rejected. It's hard to be hated. It's not pleasant. It's uncomfortable. It's even painful. It's hard to be opposed and to be spoken against and to endure cruelties which cause your loved ones pain. But it's also a useful and a necessary thing. The rejection and the hatred that's found in their, in their highest expression in his torture and in this crucifixion were, as it says in Hebrews 13, necessary, even glorious. Because it says in Hebrews 13 that he was taken outside of the gate to suffer. Now you need to understand that phrase, outside of the gate or outside of the camp. God was very peculiar with the, with the Hebrews' children, and he was very particular with the Hebrew children about, about what was allowed to take place in the camp and what had to take place outside of the camp. And basically only ceremonially clean things could happen inside of the camp. And everything else that happened outside of the camp happened outside of the camp because it was ceremonially unclean. So for instance, if you had to use the bathroom, you didn't do it in the camp. God said, I'm going to be walking through the camp and I don't want to step on anything. 
And so I, I, I want you to do that outside of the camp. And then when you're done, I want you to bury it. And God was very particular about that. So anything that happens outside of the camp, outside of the gate, is unclean. It's rejected. It's unfit. You don't want to be around it if you're a Jew and a pious Jew. And the rejection and the hatred of Jesus that find their highest expression in his torture and in his crucifixion happened outside of the gate. It is a picture both of his rejection and of his redemption. In his suffering, he sheds his blood to sanctify or set apart a people who are to be holy to the Lord. He bore our sins. They were transferred to his sacred head. And he purified us from all unrighteousness. And he sanctified us by the shedding of his blood. He bore our uncleanness outside the gate. In other words, he is, is, his death and his resurrection are a picture of what took place regularly in the Valley of Hinnom, the hell, the picture of hell. He bore our uncleanness outside of the gate. He endured the Valley of Hinnom and the attentions of the Lord of the Flies for us. Because as those two turtle doves had the guilt and the uncleanness transferred to them and then their bodies were taken outside of the gate, so our guilt and our uncleanness were transferred to him and he suffered outside of the gate. And then again, wonder of wonders, he swallowed up our uncleanness and he destroyed it. You see, when the uncleanness was transferred to those animals, they remained unclean. They had to be destroyed to get rid of the uncleanness. But when our uncleanness was transferred to Jesus, it was destroyed. And he rose victorious to newness of life. All of it was laid upon his head. It was imputed to him. But he did not remain unclean because of it. Thank God he suffered for us outside of the camp. It's a good thing that he did. But his suffering outside of the camp also spoke of his rejection by the established worldly powers of his day. Those whose hearts were revealed and whose motives uh, were corrupt, Jesus laid that bare. And his words and his gaze searched them relentlessly to the depths of their corrupted being, and his own goodness and light were painful to those who pursue darkness. If you're going to get along with people who are corrupted in their hearts, you have to play their game by their rules. You have to become corrupt yourself and at least ignore their corruptions while you're working with them. You need to turn a blind eye. And if you won't do that, and Jesus wouldn't, well, then they will hate you and they will reject you. And they'll send you away from them outside of the camp. And the book of Hebrews says it's a good thing. It is a good thing to join Jesus outside the camp. 
It's a sign to us of our blessing and of our cleansing and of our eternal privilege that we go outside the camp to be with Him and to suffer like Him if need be. On this day of all days, as we have the freedom either to attend worship or not, I want you to think about those around the world who don't have that freedom, who are on the wrong side of the political and the religious authorities, who are, for whatever reason, outside the camp with those people, objects of hatred along with the Lord Jesus. And I want you to think about that because we need to learn from them because things are changing here as well. Uh, Just within the last couple of weeks, a woman in England is facing prison time for praying silently on a sidewalk outside of an abortion clinic. English law now says that the prayers by Christian people outside of an abortion clinic are a form of assault. And here's the kicker, the clinic wasn't open when she was praying, and she wasn't even praying out loud. She was just praying silently. And the police came and they said, we've had complaints about you being here more than once. You can see the video of it online if you want. Were you praying? Well, I I was this time. I was praying in my mind. And, And the other times you were here, were you praying? I can't remember, probably. Well, then we're arresting you. And we're taking you for violating the public order because these are protected spaces. And we're not going to have any of this prayer going on here. Prayer is specifically mentioned in the statute as prohibited in these protected spaces. Prosecutors, the the UK government's Department of Prosecution made a public statement this week that it is no longer appropriate to read certain parts of the Bible out loud in public. And I want to tell you that everything that's done in a church is considered public. It's open to everybody. So it's not just standing on the street corner reading Romans 1. It's standing in church and reading Romans 1 or whatever would offend Just recently in Sweden, within the last 12 months, a Christian politician was tried and was narrowly acquitted for quoting Romans 1 on homosexuality on Twitter. And you think, well, that's Europe. They're a little weird over there. Well, we're not very far behind. Their weirdness gets imported over here, and our our avant-garde loves to look at what they're doing and do a monkey see and monkey do. And how do I know that that's going to be a problem? Well, in Massillon what, an hour and 15 minutes away from here? A teacher was fired this week for refusing to use a transgender student's preferred pronouns in the classroom. She was explicitly told that the requirements of her job took precedence over her constitutional right to freedom of religion. You see, the vice is very slowly closing around us. And we are very slowly being boxed in by the powers that be and the Lord of the flies who directs their thoughts. Hard times are coming. That's just how it is. And the words of Jesus say, when hard times like this come, 
when they persecute you on account of me, don't whine and cry. Don't get mad. Rejoice. Rejoice. Because so they treated the prophets who were before you. It is a sign that you are on the bright path, on the right side. If you stand in front of an abortion clinic on a public sidewalk and silently pray and they arrest you, rejoice. For so they treated the prophets who were before you. Go to Jesus and steady your heart and ready your heart for the day when it will come. And remember what it says in that last verse in Hebrews that we read, for here we have no lasting city. Here we have no lasting city. We seek instead a city that is to come, an eternal city, a city full of joy and peace and goodness where we will be happy forevermore. That is where we're going. And we want to take as many people with us as we can. And when we rejoice in the midst of difficult circumstances, people will look at us and they will say, what's wrong with you? And then they will say, how can you do that? I don't understand. And we will tell them about our Jesus. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. For you are our rock and our redeemer.